Welcome to another episode of the Talking Adaptive PE podcast. This week, I have Dr. Melissa Bittner, and we are going to talk all things assessment. Melissa, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Why don't you go ahead and and, uh, give the listeners a little bit about your background? Let's see. I did my um, undergraduate degree at Monmouth College in Illinois, small uh, D3 liberal arts school. I was very active in athletics. I did volleyball, basketball, track, all four years. Yeah, so I was very uh, involved in athletics. My major was K through 12, physical education and health. Uh, One great experience I had through that was observing uh, adapted physical education. My undergraduate didn't have it as an option. I went to uh, Western Illinois University to get my master's uh, with Dr. Cindy Poletic. And at that time, also worked as an itinerant APE teacher there in Western Illinois in a, a very rural setting. Finished my master's and then for 10 years, I worked at my alma mater. I was the head women's basketball coach and an instructor in our kinesiology department. I taught courses like intro to adaptive PE. Of course, I had like the traditional Friday practicums. Uh, intro to kinesiology, but always knew I wanted to go back and get my PhD. And so I applied to Texas Women's University. Of course, that's where, you know, Dr. Cindy Poletic um, went as well. And many other greats in the field was the only place I applied. So good thing they let me in. (laughs) And I went there and studied under Dr. Lisa Silliman French. My research interests are, of course, um, assessment, like we'll talk like we'll talk about today. I also do a lot of research in motor performance for autistic students, and of course, anything related to advocacy for adaptive physical education. I've been at California State University Long Beach for six six years now. I'm the APE coordinator since the the great Barry Levey retired um, a few years ago. Took over the helm, and have now a Dr. Amanda Young, another APE um, PhD here at Long Beach State. So very, very lucky to have an APE colleague here at Long Beach State. We've been very successful and just recently secured an OSEP grant to train master students in adapted PE. So that's, a, I guess, a little bit about myself to get started. I was a recipient or a benefactor of one of those grants way back in the day at SUNY Brockport under Joe Winnick. So that is ultimately how I, I was able to get my master's. So good for you for getting that because it's a great pathway for individuals to go ahead and get their master's. So when we talk about assessment, I, I kind of think of it this way, and you probably you may think of it differently, but there's there's two types. So we have ongoing assessment for a lesson or a unit, right? And we we assess, we we, we do that. But for our, our field is unique in that there are qualifying factors that are supposed to be based on assessment. So can you maybe just briefly when we when we talk about what is required as an assessment to qualify for adaptive physical education. When you hear that, how would you describe that to someone? Number one, uh, this is, there's no federal uh, mandate for that. So this comes from Shape America and the best practices, which um, also I should note that, you know, Chris, you're in California, as am I. Um, Many times your state might also have uh, state requirements to clarify what best practices are for demonstrating need. But if your state doesn't, the national Uh, clarification for that. Uh, So again, this comes from Shape America, that number one, the student needs to have one of the 14 disabilities as identified by IDEA. They need to be educationally impacted. 
And so what educationally impacted means students who fall 1.5 standard deviations below the mean or are two years below age level on a criterion reference test. So that would be the kind of basic when you hear, do they demonstrate need? That's sort of what we're looking for. But there's many other factors. Like I really want to emphasize, you cannot just use one assessment to determine those. That's a big importance. Myself and some colleagues did some research a year ago, and it was like 26% of APE teachers were just using one assessment. And that's a huge no-no. That is a federal mandate of IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that you use multiple assessments. You brought up the two years on a criterion reference. That is interesting to me because if you were to look at someone that's five and if they're at three, that's a significant gap versus like a 18-year-old that's maybe at a 16-year-old. Is there is there any data out there that looks at that more from like a percentage standpoint? Like if you were a like at a third less, because to me it feels like a percentage might tr- track better because of what I just laid out. And absolutely, there's research to support that as children with disabilities age, the gap between their motor abilities and their peers widens. That is one reason why it might be a little harder to um, get like preschool services at three years of age. Because again, to be two years behind their peer, they would have to be functioning more from a motor standpoint around someone, you know, around 12 months of age. Whereas as they get older, that gap widens. That's really helpful. You're already throwing around some buzzwords and standardizing criterion being two of them. Can you maybe offer some easily to understand definitions of each of those? Sure. Let's start off with uh, standardized assessments. So what standardized means is that there's a very strict set of procedures that have to be followed when administering that assessment. So for example, um, the equipment that you use, maybe you have to use a a four inch softball or uh, the testing environment, you're going to, uh, you know, jump using, you know, two feet, and you're looking for certain performance criteria. So the administration instructions are exactly the same. And then how you record the data is exactly the same. You scored a zero, a one or a two, how you interpret and and analyze the results are exactly the same. So Chris, whether you give the assessment or I give the assessment, we should be conducting the assessment in the same way and should be um, analyzing that assessment in the same way. Now, of course, assessments become standardized through um, validation, through valid and reliable measures, through empirical research. And actually, NICPED, uh, the National Consortium for Individuals uh, with Disabilities, has just recently come out with a um, set of, they've adopted the, the COSMIN standards for what makes an assessment standardized. And very simply, you know, it needs to be have interpretability, it needs to be peer reviewed, it needs to have reliability, um, re-standardization methods, sampling factors, and validity. Um, and actually, my myself, my colleague, Dr. Amanda Young, um, Adam Pinnell, and Andy Pitchford, we're actually working right now using these COSMIN standards, and we're analyzing them against every APE assessment in the field. So hopefully, around this summer, uh, we plan to submit um, to a peer-reviewed journal what APE assessments in the field are standardized. Again, comparing them across uh, those that COSMIN check, checklist. 
Sounds like I'm going to have to have you back on the podcast. That's what I took from that is you'll be, you'll be able to walk <laughs> us through that. Uh, that's really helpful on the standardized side of things. Now, what about criterion? If you were to describe that, to let's say you're sitting next to someone on an airplane that has no idea about assessments and you need to explain criterion to them, what would that sound like? So criterion reference assessments are going to um, measure a student's performance based off of a mastery set of criteria. So we're not comparing the student to another student. Um, we're just comparing them to a preset standard. So for example, the fitness gram has healthy fitness zones. These are preset standards. Uh, so we know if a uh, skill for a student is considered healthy, needs improvement, or needs improvement health risk. So that's what a criterion reference assessment is. It's when you are comparing against a preset criteria. Would an example of that be an assessment that looks at the developmental milestones of a, of a child and compares the skills to that in a sort of a checklist format? Could be, depending on how it's set up. Um, what that also, what, what a developmental assessment might be is more of like a norm reference assessment, which is you are going to compare the results of like a, a 10-year-old female uh, kicking compared to other 10-year-old females. So that could also be a norm reference assessment, which is another type of assessment um, where we compare the student's kind of um, ability versus uh, age. So we're out in the field and we're working and someone comes to us and says, hey, um, whether it's an initial or it's a student's triennial, we have to do an assessment on this kid. And I think most listeners understand an assessment plan will be filled out. And at least in my district, we have 60 days from the day that is signed to complete the assessment and hold the meeting. But let's talk about what, what has to go into the actual assessing. What kind of assessments need to be given to generate the assessment report? And let's start there and go from there. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is a, a loaded, layered question. Love it. Okay. First of all, the law. So again, this is Individuals with Disabilities Education Act says that we need to utilize non-discriminatory testing. And so this is really the what gets the ball rolling. And that first step in the non-discriminatory testing is that um, teachers need to make pre-referral accommodations. So we need to determine whether the student needs accommodations or modifications. So accommodations are simply just providing support to the students. Maybe they have a visual impairment and they're going to use a tether, which is like a short rope. I'll be their human guide and we're going to still run that 20 meter pacer, but we're just going to use a tether to do so. That's like an accommodation um, versus um, other examples of an accommodation might be providing visual supports or other accommodations might be providing a demonstration. I'm going to show the, the student. Um, here's how you perform a curl up right next to them, now they perform a curl up. So those are all examples of accommodations. I have not lowered the standard in any way. They're still doing what those typically developing peers are doing or still doing what that standardized assessment has told me to do. However, if we notice in our physical education class, we need to provide modifications. We need to lower the standard because the student is not able to, to safely or successfully participate and that assessment, that's going to be considered a modification. So modifications are going to happen when, so for example, a student might need to run the 15 meter pacer test rather than the 20 meter pacer, then that's what they're typically developing peers are doing. Or maybe they need to do the target aerobic movement test. Again, another 
um, cardiorespiratory assessment that's different. It's you know lowered, it's changed the standard compared to what they're typically developing peers are doing. If you are recognizing in your class that students need these modifications, that's when we need to move to the next step to getting those APE services and somebody needs to write a referral. This is so important. This is how so many students slip through the cracks that nobody writes a referral. And so right here, we're kind of you know dead in the water and that they're not going to receive services because nobody's written a referral. A referral would go to... Um, the APE teacher. And from that, we would do kind of that next step in observation. Some school districts used to call it screenings, but now many schools like to call them observations for legal purposes. So with this observation, very, very, very important that the APE teacher doesn't seclude the students. You need to do this on the playground or in their general physical education environment. Most school districts have some type of a screening form uh, that they use. And from the screening form, that APE teacher is simply um, noticing, for, you know, their ball skills, their locomotor skills, any adaptive behavior uh, that the student might have. And from this observation, it is determined, okay, yes, we think we might need to run that formal standardized assessment, or no, the student is fine in their general physical education environment. Of course, before uh, we can do that formal standardized assessment. It is certainly imperative that we get parent family permission. So they need to sign off on that. Once they have signed off, then you can do that formal standardized assessment. So that is kind of a long-winded answer there, Chris, as to one of the things the, the law says about non-discriminatory testing. There are several other things that I'll bounce to in a minute, but do you have any questions or follow-up with regards to the process there for non-discriminatory testing? No, I don't. I, th I think where, where I would ask you to go next then is, you know, the, the standardized versus criterion, what does the law then require? And you also brought up earlier that you can't just give one assessment. So what does multiple forms of assessment mean? Does an observation count as one of those? Does a parent interview count? Does staff interviews? These types of things. Let's lay out for the listeners so that they're buttoned up legally so that they are they can they have a leg to stand on they know they can feel good about their entire process from start to finish what does that need to look like great so absolutely you must use multiple assessments and again that standardized assessment is necessary uh, if you are doing any initial, triannual, or exit assessments, I will say it again, <laughs> initial, triannual, or exit assessments, you must use a standardized assessment. However, if the IEP team determines otherwise, then you may not have to utilize a standardized assessment. One example of that might be if you are working with students, uh, a student who has high support needs. So, for example, severe profound disability, um, the IEP team can then decide there's not an appropriate standardized assessment for this particular student, and it is okay then to use multiple assessments that are non-standardized. So, again, that IEP team would need to um, okay. But in most of our situations, let's talk about what multiple assessments might look like. So one being a standardized assessment. Again, this might look like something like the test of gross motor development three. Of course, we're utilizing the most recent edition because that's been out since 2019 and maybe a parent interview and maybe observations. So that would be one example of a, you know, multiple assessments that you could use. 
Another example might be uh, I want to, for a middle schooler, do a bot, bot two. I'm going to use that as my standardized assessment. And then maybe I'm going to use a non-standardized assessment like Care R as um, my non-standardized assessment. So again, you at least need multiple assessments to kind of create that decision. So it's not just I do one assessment and then drop the mic, yes or no, they need services. And for the non-standardized, uh, actually, I'm going to go a different direction first. Let's say you go through this entire assessment process and you're buttoned up pretty good, but for whatever reason, the the tester, the APE teacher didn't do a standardized. They did some sort of other um, assessment, whether it's criterion or or, or whatnot. Uh, would they are they out of compliance? And like, if a really savvy lawyer caught that, could they be in a little bit of hot water? Yes, they could be in hot water. Correct. Okay. For initial triannual exit assessments, you need to use that standardized assessment. Great. Now, the you brought up the CARE-R as it would have been the non-standardized version. Can teachers or larger departments that maybe have the staff to pull this off, could an individual create their own non-standardized assessment that could be a part of this process? Yes, absolutely. Um, again, you can use that standardized assessment. And in addition, you could use a teacher-made checklist or a rubric. Absolutely. That's really helpful. I know in San Diego, we have some internal sort of checklists within our department that we've that we've leaned on for a number of years. Can you give the listeners uh, a few examples? It sounds like maybe your research isn't done in this area, but maybe just a few examples. TGMD3 is obvious, but a few examples of well-known standardized assessments that you can point to, and then maybe you brought up the CARE-R, maybe some well-known criterion reference ones that you could point to. Sure, absolutely. And again, I guess to one example, if you want to see the most prevalent like assessments that are used at the preschool, elementary, middle school, high school, and for high needs of support, myself, Beth Foster, and Barry LeVay, in Palestra 2000, uh, 2021, uh, it was published like the most prevalent assessments. Uh, the overall most frequently used assessment is test of gross motor development. Second most was APES, uh, followed by C-TAPE as the third. But to answer your question, with regards to standardized assessments, some popular standardized assessments include Peabody, Brigantz, um, test of gross motor development, bot to fitness gram. So those would be some examples of, you know, pretty prevalent standardized. Is the, is the Brockport in there too with the fitness gram kind of? So Brockport slash fitness gram is how I would label it. Great. And then what um, about the, the, the criteria? And to be honest with the, the issue that's going to pop up with the fitness gram is one of the components is that it needs to be re-standardized every 20 years. And the last time Brockport, the, the, data from Brockport was collected in 1999. So she's dated. And that makes that makes sense because I'm sure over time, you know, populations change, right? And so you need to, you need to recalibrate. So that makes sense. What about criterion? Any well-known criterion ones out there that you could point our listeners to that would be helpful in the assessment process? Um, and Brockport and Fitness Grant are both very prevalently known criterion referenced assessments. So some non-standardized assessments also would include APs, C-TAPE, CALMS, CARE-R. I think those are a few just off the top of my head that no, that's are that's great. pretty well known. You brought oh, up and some... one thing too, sorry, Chris, one thing to also mention with these non-standardized assessments, because you are using them as supplemental assessments, you do not have to do the entire assessment. 
You absolutely can pick and choose items to add to your assessment reports. You absolutely must do the whole, the entirety of the standardized assessment, but for the supplemental non-standardized assessments, you can pick and choose items. And on the standardized where, you know, it's very particular, the ball size, they only get so many demonstrations, they only get so many trials and you have to stay within it. And that's what gives it its you know, it's strength, so to speak, that everyone is given it the same way. Let's say that's not possible. Can you still use that assessment in a non-standardized fashion and say to the parent, hey, I wasn't I wasn't able to score this. I attempted it. But here's some of the information. Here's some of the skills I was able to pull from it. Is that legal? And, and that's absolutely where those comments, the qualitative comments are very important that you make. Um, with that, one thing I highly, highly recommend from a legal standpoint is that with your standardized assessment, if that child is non-compliant, kind of like what you were mentioning, you need to attempt twice because a lawyer absolutely could say, if you would try it once, the student's non-compliant, they absolutely could come at you and say, well, that was just that one day. So I highly recommend that you try that skill, whatever skills that the, the child was non-compliant on, try them a second day. Again, if you go, to, you know, if you're litigated, you go to due process, that you then have two data and you should be fine then um, because you have attempted those particular skills twice to share that they were non-compliant. And now you can truthfully say that, you know, we tried multiple times. Jumping back a few topics, when you were talking about observations, you brought up adaptive behavior. Is there, are there any assessments out there that address this specific area? This is a unique area for adapted phys ed because the conversation becomes, well, they have the gross motor skills, but their disability is still preventing them from accessing that general PE curriculum. And so do we support that? How do we support that? Are, are you aware of anything on the adapted behavior <coughs> side that you can point to? Yes, one that is standardized is DAC2. And I like that assessment a lot for preschoolers. Um, and it has uh, an adaptive behaviors list as well. So that is a, a nice one to utilize. Um, an oldie but a goodie is um, project mobility. And that has a really nice adaptive behaviors list. And also so does Appease. Appease has adaptive behaviors within it. The P's was, you know, it was the prom queen for a lot of years when it came out. I feel like that it gained a lot of popularity and it's still flown around, but it seemed to have run into some issues with, I'm probably going to use the wrong statistical word, but whether it was its reliability or validity or whatnot. But so the, the P's, the C tape and the AMSAT are three that I've seen people reference as standardized assessments. Can you speak to the fact that we should use caution when using those three assessments? Absolutely. And again, this is what our research, you know, we're, we're working towards now, not any, you know, spoil alerts or to bias um, any of our members, but yes, all three of those, I would not recommend utilizing as a standardized assessment um, for many reasons. Uh, we can, you know, certainly talk about some, but, uh, um, you know, our research, when we do get it published, uh, will further detail and really go into all the statistics um, as to why, in comparison to those Kozman standards, they do or do not um, meet standardization criteria. You know, I used to give the AMSAT until I stumbled upon the fact that it wasn't. And I would get these strange results. And what I mean by that is, for those that aren't listening, the AMSAT looks just like the TGMD and you give a zero or a one. And it seemed like, and maybe this was just administrator error, but if I if I had just even one zero or one one difference sometimes... I would see like a significant jump in the scoring and their age outcome. And it just felt like it shouldn't be that easy, in my opinion, that just one one way or the other can jump you years, let's say. 
Um, and so that kind of is what raised a red flag to me. So what are some other red flags maybe <laughs> teachers should look for when they're looking at assessments? Uh, or if, if, if red flags isn't the right word, what are some things they can look for that signifies it actually is a strong assessment? Let's go at it the other direction. What are some things that someone could look for to be like, oh, this is a this is a solid assessment. Again, I know if a lawyer came at me, I'm I'm set, I'm good, I've given it. What are those sorts of things? So one of the biggest thing is that it's been published and it's been peer reviewed. Um, that's really important because then it kind of passes that litmus test from the field that other individuals have looked at it provided feedback and uh, presented that its validity and reliability are significant. Um, so that is definitely one of the major ways that you can determine, you know, TGMD, you know, it has a, a manual that's published, lots of research has been conducted on it. Same with bots, bot two, lots of research done on it, Peabody, lots of research done on it. That's how um, standardization is established through that empirical validation. I have taught at all levels, and I now find myself as as I balance a lead position in San Diego. I support one high school, so I'm at the secondary level, and I have found the standardized piece at the secondary level to be a little bit more difficult than you know. There's not a TGMD, the AMSAT, where we don't feel confident to use that in a standardized sense. Uh, what would you say to secondary teachers out there listening so that are, they're at least legally covered? <clears throat> well, maybe, identi maybe identifying that it's not perfect at that level, we get it, but try, look at this, you can at least be covered, and then maybe you fill in the gaps with something that is non-standardized. Yeah, one of my big things philosophically that I think that all teachers need to think about is why choose an assessment? So at the middle school, um, secondary level, one of the concerns I have is that, you know, why are we using the AMSAT, which is fundamental motor skills? Should a middle school or should a secondary student be, you know, is that where our focus should be on galloping and skipping? Um, or instead, should we move more towards um, fitness and, you know, life skills? Um, and so that's kind of one step philosophically that I would encourage for that particular age range, because I see that that's an issue in the field. My suggestion for that age range would do a Brockport slash fitness gram. And again, that could kind of be your standardized assessment. Uh, and then you could supplement with, uh, there's some um, great ecological assessments from region 10 out of Texas. Um, and they have, you know, things like <laughs> Frisbee golf or um, accessing, you know, bowling, you know, just things that that transition group might consider. Um, so you can supplement with some of those types of assessments. So that would mm -hmm. kind of be my suggestion around that age range. I know that Perky Vetter also has a secondary sports skills uh, book that's coming out. It's not standardized yet. I, I've heard that they are working on the data, but that could also be a nice supplement to that age range. One of the region 10 ones you speak of, I stumbled upon, and I think it's great. It's called the lifetime leisure supplement. And that specifically looks at, again, just those bocce's on there, bowling's on there, but so is basketball. Can they shoot a basketball and hit the rim from so many feet away or hit the backboard? And so that's a, that's a great one to, to supplement that. So let me let me lay it out for you for our listeners and I want you as the expert to tell me if if I've got this correct and if our listeners take this then legally they they should be solid. So 
whether it's an initial or triennial, it doesn't matter. So initial is when we, for, for the listeners, we first identified that we think there may be gross motor needs. Triennial <laughs> means they already have the service, but every three years we have to revisit it and determine eligibility basically all over again. That's how we keep ourselves in check to be like, yes, they still need to serve. So this happens, an assessment plan, they do an observation. An observation does not mean pull the kid into a one-on-one -on -one environment where you test skills. That's basically an assessment at that point. So don't do that, but observe. Observe them on the playground, observe them in a natural setting where you can see some gross motor skills. So we've done that. We say, yep, I think we've got a need here. Let's get on an assessment plan. We're on the assessment plan. It's signed. Whatever our window is that our district adheres to, we, we within our window. So as long as we do a standardized of some kind and a non-standardized, which you've laid out the multiple types, then legally, legally we are good. And for all the listeners listening that are saying, I have a slew of kids that can't access standardized tests, you then say, that's okay. If your IEP team is in agreement with you, then you can give a non-standardized test and you would just reflect that in the report of your reasoning for not giving a standardized test. Is that from a from point A to point B in terms of the assessment process, is that legally sound advice that we're giving people there? Yeah, that's great. Now we just need all teachers to do those things. <laughs> I know. If we could only have all teachers doing those things, I agree. I'm going to go on, uh, I think it's tangentially related, uh, but I want to talk about goals a little bit and maybe ours too. So now we've gone through this entire assessment process and we've identified based on our data that the student requires our service. You see a lot of things being at the, at the higher levels and you've been in other states. So you, you know, your fingers on the pulse, I feel like, is there, is there a best practices for how hours should be delineated on an IEP, whether it's weekly, monthly, yearly. And it seems to me that we kind of have a cookie cutter approach to hours in that, you know, typically kids get it, <laughs> they get 16 or they get eight or they get four and it's that, can you maybe offer some best practices just generally on hours on how they're laid out on the IEP and maybe even the amounts that we give? Sure. Um, yeah, lots of layers to that. Let's, let's unpack. Um, I don't recommend giving weekly hours anymore. I know we used to. I don't recommend that anymore. I highly recommend monthly or even yearly hours. Um, that's because let's say you, you know, leave to go to the national APE conference and you've got to make up those minutes. And so sometimes that's really difficult. And so I highly recommend that uh, you utilize monthly or even yearly minutes because I think it offers a lot more flexibility. Okay, so that's one aspect of the question. And I know you guys at San Diego, I believe you all do yearly minutes, correct? We do We do yearly hours, yearly hours. Oh, yeah, yearly hours, yes. Yeah, we do. So and I, I highly... No, I was going to say the next part was it though is that it seems that no matter where you get a kid from, whether they come out of state or not, it just seems that we... Uh, the kid qualifies and their level of need is rather significant and they're elementary. Well, you can probably guess they have 16 hours a year, which is about yeah. 30 minutes a week. Right. But so, I just feel like we could poke holes in the, a talented lawyer could poke holes in that theory. I feel like. So this is absolutely uh, one of those shades of gray. There's no like sliding scale charts in APE to determine, well, you know, how many hours, you know, what, what, what's their need. Um, of course, the, you know, the old saying that's, you know, goals drive service um, and need drives how much service they receive. So in theory, if a student has higher needs of support, they should be receiving, you know, more hours. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, we were onto something really great with one of my master's students. 
he did a survey. It was during pandemic and we only had, I don't know, probably 13 or so participants, but we looked at TGMD scores and um, number of you know service hours that the student was getting to see if there was a correlation because in, in theory, it should be the lower their TGMD score was, the more APE you know, um, minutes they were getting. Uh, but unfortunately, that was not what we were seeing in the correlation. We were actually seeing um, that it was correlated with caseload number, that the higher the teacher's caseload, the less, you know, the less service the student was getting. Um, so this is absolutely a future area in the next, you know, decade or so we need to further delve into and look at, you know, what's happening out there. How are we determining minutes? How, how long are the minutes? Because obviously a preschooler might only be able to focus for, for 20 minutes, maybe elementary for 30 minutes, high schooler 45 minutes, but also, you know, there's a, a lot of factors. I, I, my hypothesis and assumptions going to also be, it's going to depend on like teacher travel. How many schools are they servicing? And are they going to that school on Tuesday, Thursday, and the other schools in their district Monday, Wednesday. <laughs> so I, I think that that goes into, you know, the factor far too much as well, that there's a, there's not a great formula to determine. Because again, I think this is some reason why we lose sight and many school administrators think that we're a class, and we're not a service. Um, because of this issue is that we, you know, service four days a week because I'm going to take everybody, which not that absolutely shouldn't happen because we are a service and you have to demonstrate need. Would a physical therapist or an occupational therapist just take everybody? No, they would not. We have to remember that we are a service. Right. And along those lines, we people should be careful of like using the word benefit because everybody would benefit if we wanted to have a real conversation about that. Mm -hmm. But you, you bring up a good point in that, you know, we I see or I talk to teachers from around the country now and there's these self-contained classrooms and it's like, oh, we have APE at this time. And it's like APE is the class and the APE teacher is then the physical education provider and just everybody goes. And I can speak for my my situation at, at a high school. And we use the moderate to severe designation. Um, there are absolutely students in there who don't have my service, nor nor would I add it because it would not be appropriate. And they are going out to general PE because th their gross motor needs don't match their sort of academic and life skill needs at this time, right? So it's an interesting conundrum we find the field in. But then when we look at, I'm going to jump here, and when we look at goals, if there's more hours on the IEP, should there be more goals then? Um, not necessarily, because it might take that student a long time to reach that one, you know, one or two goals that they might have just because of their high support needs. So no, that doesn't necessarily correlate. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of before. I have a, a kind of a take on goals that I find, I just find them unique. I find the idea unique that we would just choose one or two areas that we're going to focus on. And I say that because at least in our domain, we're, we typically expose our kid to an entire curriculum of, of things. Um, so just what, do you have any just general goal advice? Is it just as simple as, Hey, just, just find an area where the kid is not performing and put a goal in that area. Or is there, is there anything legally we need to just be really cautious of when it comes to our goals, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Nothing per se, like legally, uh, that like idea mentions, because again, ideas 
written in pretty shades of gray so it can be interpreted whether you're in California or Iowa or Maine. But your assessment report should paint a picture as to what that student's highest needs are. In addition, you also need to remember philosophically what does that student need to work on, you know, to maybe be functional for a lifetime. And then also in addition, like parent families, what's something maybe they want their child to uh, do recreational bowling. And so we're going to work on underhand role because that's really important to that parent family that their, you know, their son could come bowling with them on the weekend. So there's a many layers to answering like what is the most appropriate goal for the student. There's not a lot of black and white in our field, quite honestly. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> so what's, what about, are there any, I'm going back to assessments now. I know I'm a little bit all over the place, but are there any, and every situation is different, but are there any assessments you give a gold star to that like you, like, is it that list you gave earlier, the TGMD, the bot two, are there any that you give like a gold star to where you're like, this is a really good assessment and it may not be appropriate for every kid, but you should definitely consider this one. Right. And that, that's exactly the answer to that one. It depends on the students and what their abilities are. And that's the whole weakness of a standardized assessment is that sometimes students with disabilities, we're going to learn a whole lot about what a student can't do. But that's the beauty of the non-standardized assessment. That's where you can really tailor it to find what a student can do. So those standardized assessments are, are very, very important, obviously, because of legal reasons. Um, but also from the, we mentioned adaptive behaviors, they need to be able to do those things like on command when asked. And can the student do those things? And sometimes we find out, no, they cannot. All right. So we're, we're, we're getting close here and I appreciate your time. Can you <laughs> give the group, you know, as you're getting your pre-service teachers ready to go out in the field, I'm guessing that you have touch points that are already in the field. And so you see things when it comes to assessment. Can you just give maybe two to three like no-nos that you're seeing happen a little too consistently out in the field that you would just really want to tell the listeners to avoid this when it comes to your assessment practice? And honestly, Chris, I think it's maybe a summary of the things that we just discussed is that making sure that you're using that standardized assessment for initial triannual exits, making sure that you're using multiple assessments, um, making sure that you are following that assessment process that, you know, are we getting the referrals? And again, Anyone in that school can give a referral, PT, classroom teacher, parent, family, general PE teacher, that we need to get that assessment process started so students don't fall through the cracks. Because far too many times we see students at middle school or high school that aren't getting services. And maybe that's another huge, huge piece of the puzzle, too, is just to heavily emphasize that preschool students absolutely can receive adapted physical education and transition students, you know, 18 to 22 years of age, absolutely can receive APE services if it's written in their IEP. If it's not in their IEP, far too many school districts, like for example, in California, they do their two years and they say, all right, bye, because it's not written in their IEP. But legally, these students can and should be receiving services until they turn 22. You've given so much advice today or just, and you've laid out the assessment process. I'm someone that's been in the field over a decade and I think my head is spinning. Give you the microphone for the last word today, if you would like. Is there anything else you want to offer up to the listeners? I mean, you've, you've, you've kind of laid it all out, but is there anything else when it comes to assessment you want people to consider or no let's see can give some assessment tips how about that yeah that would be some great of my favorite assessment tips um number one 
know your assessment because when you look down at your clipboards and start reading your assessment, your student has probably eloped. They have probably they've run off. So very important to know your assessments. Know what to say and how to say it. That this is a big one I catch my students on when I teach them how to assess. Uh, certainly, whatever a standardized assessment tells you, that's what you say. But if it doesn't say, I encourage you to use terms like, I want you to run as fast as you can. I want you to throw as hard as you can. Because children awful, um, oftentimes overemphasize um, movements, which makes it easier for you as the assessor um, when you say, I want you to run as fast as you can or throw as hard as you can. Also, this is another big one, careful with feedback that you give. It's a big no-no during assessment to give specific feedback. You cannot say, oh, I liked the way you got your knees up nice and high when you were running. No, that's teaching because you gave them performance criteria. You have to keep it very general because again, you wanna find their present level of performance. You don't wanna spoil that by giving them specific feedback. You can say that for your teaching, <laughs> but when you assess, it's very you know, robotic. Oh, you know, good effort on that. And also I wanna talk about saying good job. This is something that my students say far too often when they are doing assessment. They're like, oh, high five, good job, you know, way to skip. But maybe that student did not skip at all. Like it was not even close. If we tell them good job, what have we done? We've just reinforced that, oh, that's how we skip. I did a good job on that. So don't tell the student good job um, when assessing if they did not meet the performance criteria. Instead, you can reinforce very, you know, Again, generally reinforce the efforts. You know, oh, good effort. You tried hard on that one. And then move on to the next thing. Um, so again, careful with what you say. One of my favorite things to utilize when I assess, again, this is an accommodation. We're not modifying, but an accommodation. Use polyspot. Stand on the polyspot. Have an observation polyspot. That's very helpful when you assess. And again, you can utilize that with a standardized or a non-standardized assessment because it's simply an accommodation. However, you don't want to use a polyspot when you get a stuck-in-the-mud student, meaning they are afraid to step off the polyspot because the floor is lava, and so they're throwing and not stepping at all, not stepping in opposition because you, you know, scared them into you must stay on your polyspot. So those types of students don't use a polyspot for. Other tips, consider using the PREMAC principle when you assess. Most assessments don't mandate what order you give the skills in. So I like to do something like we're going to do a locomotor skill and then you get to do a ball skill. So we're going to run and then we're going to dribble the basketball and then we're going to gallop and then we're going to strike off the tee and then we're going to skip and then we're going to um, kick the soccer ball. So utilize that pre-MAC principle, you know, something less preferred, locomotor skills. And then you can do something more preferred, ball skills. That helps with their focus. In addition with that, consider number of days. Do not feel, unless the assessment tells you otherwise, and it's standardized, that you have to do the assessment in one sitting, that you can break it up over several days if need be to get your assessment in. Uh, usually best practices is try to complete it within two weeks because after that, you know, maturation and maybe they're just getting better because they're getting a little older or stronger. So try to finish it within two weeks, but don't feel like you have to get the whole assessment done in one day. Maybe the, my last tip is utilize your paraprofessionals, but know how to utilize your paraprofessionals and what you can and can't do with a paraprofessional. A paraprofessional absolutely cannot score the assessment, but they can help set up equipment. Um, they can help with behaviors. 
they can be your scribe and write down, you know, that, that was a, a zero, that was a one. Again, you're telling them what the score was, um, but utilize your paraprofessionals. Paraprofessionals can demonstrate. Um, again, this is another huge, huge tip when um, assessing. Please make sure that your um, demonstration is done to mastery criteria. You know, if you show a student a horizontal jump, but you don't use your arms at all, they're going to, you know, they're going to mimic what they just saw. And so it's imperative that you are demonstrating a correct skill or the paraprofessional or a peer or video modeling. Any of those are appropriate, just as long as it's done um, at mastery criteria. And then finally, the maybe final tip I have is utilize comment. That's going to be that qualitative component to your assessment that truly helps paint a picture. That's one of the biggest differences between um, a new assessor and a seasoned assessor. As someone who's been in the field for a while really knows how to qualitatively make great comments with each skill so you know what the student uh, is able to do and keep it positive. Okay, that was so much. <laughs> no, I, I think I'm, I'm going to just go grab a kid that I have an assessment plan open for and assess right away and put those tips to work. But what, where can the listeners just generally, where would you suggest if they want to learn more about assessments or which assessments are strong? Can you, is there any resources you can point them to um, that where they can learn more? Um, definitely learn more through some research. I, I mentioned earlier that we had a Palestra article in 2021 that outlines, you know, which assessments are used at what level that's highly recommended. Uh, Nick Peed has a list of what APE assessments are used in the field. So myself and uh, Dr. Young put that out. I think that was maybe in 2021. But if you, uh, it's through the the Nick Peed, uh, the Advocate newsletter. So that's um, just what assessments are out in the field. Of course, be looking in the the future where myself and researchers are diving into what assessments are standardized. Uh, and I also know that I have a webinar coming out with Shape America, one of the by you for you webinars on APE assessments. So it goes over a lot of this. And again, I have a PowerPoint to share and visuals. So that should be coming out soon. Um, also, consider your local you know, university and maybe they have uh, an APE assessment class that you could take um, or, of course, uh, conferences, the National APE Conference always has sessions on assessments. Uh, NICPEG conferences often have time, often have um, assessments sessions as well. And possibly your state conference, your state shape or state APER conference. Yeah, I, yeah. And I guess there's also a lot of podcasts. I know Scott McNamara's podcast, What's New in Adapted PE, has other sessions on um, assessment. So there's a lot of ways that you can utilize uh, assessment. There's a textbook on assessment, the Horvat textbook. Oh, and yeah, I guess maybe spoiler alert, I just found out yesterday I got approved for my sabbatical in summer 2024. And I plan to write a assessment textbook, um, not so much like a textbook per se, but like a, you know, a APE teacher's assessment booklets um, that's completely geared toward the APE um, teacher practitioner on like best practices for assessment. So that's my big plan on my sabbatical in spring of 2024. So 
coming soon. We're, we're doing the good work to continue to get the word out on assessments. So all of those are great resources. You absolutely are doing the good work. Now, uh, do you have a Twitter presence or social media presence that people could connect with you at? Oh, of course. So we are very uh, prevalent at Long Beach State APE. And we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I think those are the main ones, maybe even YouTube a little bit. But we post nearly daily at Long Beach State APE and tons of different teaching tip ideas, behavior management plans, assessments, ideas. Um, you can yeah get a lot of great tips for following us. And of course, if you wanted to reach me via email, it's um, Melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A dot Bittner, B-I-T-T-N-E-R at C-S-U-L-B. So California State University, Long Beach dot E-D-U. Melissa, great information today. Thank you for being here. And it was great to connect with you. All right. Yeah. Thanks again. Till next time.